everyone. I'm John Marvin, your host of Insight, a podcast series dedicated to learning about the challenges and opportunities in the optical and optometric industry. Welcome, this is John Marvin with another episode of Insight, the podcast for the optometric profession and industry. I'm very excited today to have as a guest Frank Warren with Seabrook Wessex. Frank and I have known each other for a number of years. We first met when we were both going to college at Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We became friends during that time period. And then as people do when they leave college, you kind of lost touch with each other. But we reconnected over the years through social media. And recently, uh, Frank reached out to me and uh, we got on the phone together and had a great conversation. And I thought, this is pretty interesting and exciting stuff. I'd like to have you on as a guest on the podcast to talk about uh, you and what you can do, and, and particularly Seabrook Wessex and how that might be a real value to uh, members in this profession and industry. So thank you, Frank, for agreeing to come on today. John, thank you very much for having me. Well, so while I have an understanding of you and your background and so forth, why don't you uh, take a few minutes and just tell our audience a little bit about yourself and kind of how it is that you uh, have come to be on this podcast and what we're going to talk about. I was born in uh, uh, on a late winter morning in uh, in Richmond, Virginia, uh, to a, a seminary student and a school teacher. And um, my father wound up deciding not to complete his uh, divinity degree and took his Davidson College business degree and started uh, uh, started a career in sales. Uh, we wound up being it was for me an exciting life. We wound up being transferred quite a bit when I was a kid and uh, wound up in my mother's hometown, uh, which is uh, Asheville, North Carolina. Uh, and Asheville kind of fancies itself to be the uh, the logical successor to Austin, Texas. So it's, it has a, a, a quaintness and a loopiness to it. that's just absolutely delightful. I left uh, Asheville in 1974, headed out to Tulsa to become, um, and this is a technical term, a left-wing flaming wacko broadcast journalist. I wanted to study telecommunications. And then my father uh, quite literally dropped dead at the age of 45. And um, uh, so I wound up uh, changing my career path and Changed to history, minored in business and poli sci, and and uh, eventually, um, <clears throat> after spending some time in the insurance industry and uh, working as a political consultant, I wound up uh, uh, heading off to uh, to law school and um, wound up uh, coming to South Carolina. That wasn't originally part of the plan, but uh, I did and practiced law for 24 years, and then had a uh, very serious illness and uh, had to stop. So um, as I got into the process of, um, of recovery, I had planned on eventually going, moving into consulting and out of law. And uh, it just so happened that um, my health situation kind of forced the issue. And uh, so I wound up, uh, I'd been planning on uh, getting a, a master's in business administration and uh, combining that with my law degree and, uh, and uh, doing some business consulting and executive coaching. And uh, where did you get your MBA? I got my MBA at uh, the Jack Welch Management Institute. And, uh, you know, Welch was the legendary CEO of General Electric, the, the greatest manager of the 20th century and, and, I, and arguably the 21st century. The thing that attracted me to the program was the, uh, the Welch Way Management Principles, 
um, and there are four of them. And and the every course is is um, uh, rests on those four pillars. And the the MBA, uh, I know that when you were first telling me about this, I was real intrigued because it is a three year accredited MBA, just like you would get at University of Texas. Same uh, same accreditation uh, process. Uh, uh, I think they're accredited by the. Um, uh, well, there's there's actually two accrediting bodies: the North Central Association of Colleges and Schools, and then um, there's another one that just accredits uh, graduate business programs, and it's the same one that uh, uh, that Horton uh, Business School is accredited by. It's possible to complete the the program in um, in a year and a half or so. Uh, but I, it was pretty much all that I could do, still recovering my health, to uh, to take uh, you know one course a term, and and I really enjoyed it. I was doing it on my own terms, and you know, shoot, uh, you know, sixty three years old, I, I I really wasn't ready to hang it up, and I really wanted to try to continue to create value if I possibly could, and this was something that uh, was like the perfect program for me. So, how did you first become aware of the Jack Welch program? Mr. Rick Fane, John, I was, um, I, I'm a big fan of a magazine called Success, and I think you're familiar with it also. Yes. And um, at the time, uh, a um, venture capitalist by the name of Darren Hardy, who's a terrific author, was also uh, publishing uh, Success. And he did a, uh, an interview, I think it was in the, the May 2015 issue, uh, he interviewed Jack Welch. And then... Um, there's a there was an expanded interview on a, on a CD that they always include with each issue. Welsh began talking about this um, this you know vision that he had for business, graduate business education, and that he just established a uh, had established an MBA program. And what was interesting, you know, Jack's really big on uh, disruption in industry and and really thinking outside the box. And um, uh, I will tell you, I had some prejudice because it's an online program. And I had already narrowed my list down to um, East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. I'm in, in South Carolina. And um, the other program was the Cherry School of Business at the University of Georgia. And so I just figured uh, I, I, I had, I, even though Jack Welch was involved in it and, and very hands-on involved, I still had a prejudice about it. So um, I talked to somebody in the admissions department. They got some information to me. And it was pretty much they answered all the the questions and the concerns that I had, and it is a real, uh, it's a real MBA program with uh, real students. And I've had, I've had um, classmates ranging from people who uh, um, were headed up nonprofits in North Carolina to a rock, a literal rocket scientist at um, uh, at uh, NASA Huntsville in Alabama. Well, I after you and I talked about it, I went online and I looked it over and so forth, and. Uh... I was so impressed and um, that about this program, and I, I guess maybe uh, you know. Thanks, Frank, for telling everybody how old we are. But uh, <laughs> appreciate that. But anyway, I, you know, maybe for people of our generation, the idea of an online degree, graduate degree, seems like it you know wrought with scam and potentially not legitimate. But that's the way. There's a lot of there's a you can get a full time law degree now online. Yeah, and you can a fully so. accredited one. And and as the delivery system, I just am now that I've gone through the program and I'm looking back, I am grateful to God every day. It, it was a it was a tremendous experience. 
I had tr- I had great professors who um, who had uh, practical real world experience. Uh, several of them have been very gracious to me as I, uh, as uh, Seabrook Wessex has has uh, progressed. Uh, they've been very generous with advice and uh, and ideas and things and and because uh, uh, I mean even though I already have a doctoral degree and I've got this MBA, one of the things that I've learned is that I'm not the smartest guy in the room. And you know, it, whenever you whenever you find yourself in that position, you need to get into another room. So um, I'm very grateful to wiser and um, uh, ex- more experienced people who have uh, made themselves available to me. As a delivery system, I'm absolutely convinced this is a great thing because, um, uh, you know, and it's interesting. I had uh, a number of fellow students who um, were healthcare professionals, several doctors and dentists, and I think there was an optometrist or two. So, um, uh, you know, if you're you know, functioning with a busy practice and you don't have time to, to you know, take a couple of years off to just dedicate yourself to uh, a graduate business education, this is a great delivery system. Well, it, it's probably going to be a lot more um, common in the future as a way of, of people gaining higher education and graduate pro, uh, graduate degrees than than we'd ever imagined. But okay, and we're going to take a quick break right now. We're talking to Frank Warren with Seabrook Wessex and have been discussing a little bit about his experience uh, going through the Jack Welch uh, MBA program. And uh, we'll be right back after this short break. Optometry Giving Sight is a global charity that funds the establishment of sustainable eye and vision care services so people in underserved communities can help themselves. It's more than just giving sight. It's about transforming lives. By donating, you'll provide funding to train and educate people to become practicing optometrists, as well as establish clinics and vision centers that provide local employment and access to affordable services. Optometry Giving Sight transforming lives through the gift of vision. Welcome back. We're talking with Frank Warren with Seabrook Wessex. And um, in the previous segment, we were talking a little bit about his experience uh, earning his MBA from the Jack Welch Management and MBA program. Uh, What is it? You mentioned the Welch Way what is it that makes the Jack Welch MBA program different than from other MDA degrees? MDA. Well, MBA. You know, if, if somebody was, if somebody wanted to be a, a you know finance guy or an arbitrage guy on on Wall Street, Welch would not be their program. They would want to go to something like you know Horton or Harvard Harvard B School. But um, if you're interested in entrepreneurship and organizational leadership. Um, you know, change leadership, those kinds of things. Um, Welch is perfect. Um, and, and the, the Welch way um, is a management philosophy that, that rests on four pillars. You know, the first is mission and values. And so you as the entrepreneur, uh, or and more specifically, the, uh, the, the doctor, have a have a um, an idea of what it is that you want the, your practice to, to accomplish, and you, you you should be able to, and you should be able to communicate that well in a way that your that your people can understand it. Well, what makes the mission achievable is having a, a, a strong set of values, and when 
in, in Welch culture, when you're talking about values, you're not talking about these little platitudes on the break room wall. Um, values are behaviors that that when those behaviors are consistently displayed by everybody in the organization, then the mission is achieved. So um, in a in a larger organization, uh, you um, the the uh, entrepreneur manages uh, and expresses the, what the mission is going to be, but the uh, the people who are actually making it real determine what the values are, what the behaviors are that that are uh, going to be necessary to accomplish the mission. In a smaller organization like a small um, uh, eye care practice, you're probably going to see that entrepreneur more intimately involved. But if if he or she is uh, really intelligent about it. Uh, you want your people to have ownership and giving them uh, expressing what the mission is and then saying, all right, I want you to figure out how we get there uh, based on what your individual you know, functions are in the practice. Um, that is a much more collegial way to function. And it's uh, it's certainly much better than the typical pyramid uh, organizational chart that unfortunately um, winds up becoming more of a food chain. Uh, in the 21st century, it's uh, it, to the extent that you're able to to eliminate um, layers of responsibility and um, make things less tyrannical, you really are going to have a much better result. But and then the and then the the uh, the second uh, principle is candor, and uh, Jack, uh, in fact, describes it in one of his books, "Winning" as being uh, uh, the lack of candor being the the most open, dirty secret in business. People are not clear about what it is that they um uh what's going on in their companies or, or what they expect of people you know as a result you've got um performance reviews that are worth nothing so he he says that your performance review ought to be on us uh can should be on no more than two pages and, and preferably a six by nine index card where you're listing those things that you like and you want more of those things you dislike and and what needs to happen, what, what the results are if you don't. So that way nobody is surprised if um, things go south and you, and you terminate them. The third principle is differentiation. And this has always been a struggle for me. But the idea of differentiation is, is that you want to bring people into your organization who have different personality makeups and different talents than you do. And I had a bad habit, other businesses that I've had, of hiring people who are just like me. Because I thought it would be, you know, it would be a lot of fun. but um, uh, I needed people who had other skill sets that I don't have and who, who um, like for detail sometimes for me is a little bit of a struggle. I'm a, I'm a strategist and a big picture kind of guy. So um, it's important for me and I'm doing this to um, have in my organization people who are, who, who love minutia. And um, so when you do that, You've got people hitting their unique abilities and and uh, and and leveraging them for the benefit of the uh, of achieving the mission is a great thing. And then the the fourth principle is this idea of of um, voice and dignity. And you know Jack tells a story uh, uh, when he became the chairman of GE uh, of a tour they took of all their facilities, and he stopped at this one particular place. I think it was a plant in Kentucky, and. Uh, he went. He went down on the line as he did at every other place, and he didn't spend as much time with honchos in that facility. But he spent time with people who were actually on the line producing the product. And um, he, this one particular guy, he, he had a rather extended conversation with. Him. At the end of the conversation, the guy said, "You know, you've had my uh, uh, you've had my 
you've paid for my body for 25 years. You could have had my mind for free. It was the first time that anybody had asked this guy what he thought about how the job ought to be done. And um, uh, in, in the 21st century, when you've got a, 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 an increasing uh, proportion of millennials entering your, uh, your workforce and becoming part of your, of your, uh, of your practice team, there's a, there's a cultural conflict there. And you, uh, so if you, if you, or tyrannical. If you if you if you like that uh, that hierarchical viewpoint, you're not going to get as much out of your people, and so uh, you know treating them with dignity and and uh, and giving them a voice and things is really really important. But it also when you have to bring come to a place where it's time for somebody to go, how you handle that is really uh, is really critical because um, if you're treating someone with dignity, you're you're not just having them box up their stuff and take them out at the end of the day. Jack really advocates going the extra mile, making sure that they're compensated for a while after you, after they, they leave and making, giving them a, um, you continue to pay them while they're looking for another job up to a certain, uh, up to, up to a certain point. And um, it, 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 it takes a potentially unpleasant situation and, and, and actually gives us some value. All of those tenets are extremely applicable to optometry in my experience and would be a real, would give some direction and help people uh, better understand how to manage. One of the things is kind of notorious in professions, whether it be attorneys, optometrists, or uh, accountants, or architects, is that you have a, when you own the business, you're both the primary revenue generator, but you're also the, the person responsible for the operations and the management, and because most professions, most professionals chose not to go into business because they wanted to pursue their profession, naturally, the profession is more appealing to them, and they enjoy it more, so they tend to avoid the management side. And so I think that the structure you've outlined here with these four tenets or pillars uh, is a good set of guideposts in terms of helping people manage, and I, I found it very interesting. I, I read an article that appears on uh, LinkedIn, and, and I, I'm embarrassed I can't remember exactly how I worded the title. It was something to the effect of uh, making yourself needless for fun and profit. And um, you, one of the problems in any business, and I would say in a professional practice in particular, is that um, uh, you know, because so much does rest on you, sometimes it's easy to forget that you need to make sure that you stay rested and refreshed. And, and to the extent that you can make your practice self-managing, and this is one of the things we emphasize uh, at Seabrook Wessex with our clients, um, you know, the better off you are. And it's going to be much easier to sell that practice when, uh, when you're ready to, to, to hang it up. But I will tell you, um, I did not make my practice as self-managing as it could have, and I burned out. And um, it was not pretty. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like. So what is the, first of all, where did the name Seabrook-Wessex come from? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Um, Seabrook Island is a, uh, Seabrook is, the Seabrook part is named for uh, Seabrook Island, which is a community uh, next to Kiowa, where a lot of great golf and, and tennis happen. And uh, uh, it is one of my favorite places on the planet. Uh, in fact, we've actually chosen to um, make a neighboring 
community, uh, Johns Island, South Carolina, our legal base, and I'm probably going to start spending more time in that area as time uh, as, uh, as time goes on. And then uh, Wessex, I'm a big fan of uh, having been a history major. Uh, one of my heroes in uh, world history is Alfred the Great, and he was uh, the the first kingdom that he was the king king of was the kingdom of Wessex. And uh, he eventually became the king of all Britain. But um, uh, the, both those things, were, the Seabrook reminds me uh, as a daily reminder of uh, the importance of making sure that I, that I recharge and that uh, I take time off. And then the Wessex part reminds me that uh, you know, uh, Alfred the Great had been surrounded by the Danes and his kingdom was reduced to 30 acres before he snuck out and rallied his troops and defeated them. And so, um, uh, you know, some, even when you think things look impossible, um, they're not. There's always a there's always a way out. There's always a, a solution if you if you uh, concentrate and and um, give yourself an opportunity to be creative. <laughs> That's great. I had I knew there was a story behind that just by by virtue of knowing you and and the name itself. We're going to take another quick break here. We're talking with Frank Warren with Seabrook Wessex. And uh, we'll be right back in just a minute. America, let me tell you about Sergeant Greg Anderson. Served two tours in Afghanistan, Bronze Star and Purple Heart recipient, and unemployed. The unemployment rate among transitioning service members is unacceptably high, much higher than the general population. Veterans are a proven commodity. They're mature, reliable, and hardworking. They deserve a chance to get back to work after serving their country. Do you really want to honor a veteran? Hire one. Welcome back. We're talking with Frank Warren of Seabrook, Wessex. Uh, Frank, um, we've talked a little bit about the the Jack Welch uh, MBA program and the Welch Way, and you were outlined these four pillars. Um, what do you see for yourself professionally in Seabrook, Wessex, going forward, in employing these uh, teachings, these learnings, what you've gained out of this kind of special MBA? Uh, what's the future look like for Seabrook, Wessex? Well, the, the, our, our, our vision is a, um, I won't say a global vision, but it's an international vision, first with the United States and Canada, and then um, Australia and New Zealand uh, enter into our business plan. And for some inexplicable reason, I think it's because of an Anthony Bourdain episode that I watched one time, we've got an interest in helping uh, Western com- companies that are um, doing business in or manufacturing in Vietnam. So um, uh, that's that's sort of at the uh, on the horizon of the program, but uh, English Commonwealth countries are really the, the the core of what we're going to do, simply because of the way that the legal systems and the business systems work, and there's a commonality there that makes it makes it much easier to serve. I've kicked around the idea of getting a doctorate in business administration, and have been encouraged by two of my professors at Jack Welch to do that because I am. Uh, I am positioning Seabrook Wessex to do things on an international basis, but at the same time, um, we don't. We're trying to be very careful about how large we make the organization because uh, I'm a strong believer in what Jack says about business being fun, and um, I don't want things to become so large that I'm not connected to what's going on uh, in each part of my organization. 
and and I want it to be fun. I want it to be fun for everybody, and I want it to be fun for uh, you know for our clients. Uh, you know, as we share with them um, how to make their their companies and their practices better and uh, and more satisfying. We want them to be satisfying on a on a, on a very holistic um, basis rather than just on a, on a profit basis. Not that we don't like profit. We like profit very much. Now, optometry, and uh, the reason I thought it would be good to have you on this podcast and learn a little bit about what you do and your background. Optometry is a small business and your typical optometry practice uh, in the United States is going to generate somewhere around $800,000 in revenue. And they're going to end up with five to six employees plus the doctor. So how would you approach a small business like that in helping them to better manage and their operations. Well, one of the things that I think that if God's given me any gifts, I think it's the ability to ask um, to ask good questions and important questions. And um, uh, so we, the first time that we meet with a client, we do ask a lot of questions, and there may be some data gathering that we'll have them do, or have uh, their staff help them with uh, uh, putting together. But we want to get a real good handle on what it is that. Um, you know, what their, what their challenges are. And one of the things that we do, sometimes it's considered to be a separate service, but really it's becoming cultural for us, uh, is this, this idea of, uh, of um, design thinking. And design thinking actually first started with a guy by the name of, of Ramon Louis, who was a, a, an American uh, industrial designer, uh, but he was, was born in France. And um, if you're in our age bracket, John, you cannot have avoided, but you could not have avoided seeing his work because uh, everything from uh, the dispensers for um, for Coca-Cola to uh, uh, rail, uh, railway locomotives and inner city buses. And, uh, and then um, I remember the first time that I ever saw a Studebaker Avanti, which is a car that is in the Smithsonian. And he penned, he penned the design for that car. And that, I first laid eyes on one in 1969. I was 13 years old. It's the first time I ever thought about a, a car being beautiful. I mean, I was just, I was just smitten. Well, he, uh, Lowy has uh, um, had this uh, this viewpoint that um, you should design from the standpoint of the end user, and you could do so and have that be profitable and still be aesthetically pleasing. So we've actually taken that uh, that viewpoint. This is what we were taught to do at Welch, and and not just a, not just applying it to to tangible things, but to to services that are that are rendered to uh, to to clients and patients, but and then also to, uh, internally to the way that your um, uh, the way that your staff and your team experience uh, what it is to to work for you, and if if you if it is an experience economy, and if uh, if everybody is getting a great experience, you have uh, great patient retention, and you've got great employee retention. You don't have the uh, you don't have as much turnover. So, um, uh, as I said, that started out as an idea to um, uh, as a practice area, and we, it's wound up just becoming uh, a part of the warp and woof of uh, of everything that we do at Seabrook Wessex. So, there was a period of time that you owned your own law practice. I did, and uh, so you can readily identify as someone who is the primary provider, but also have the responsibility for managing. 
So given your experience and more and, and also your education, your perspective that's been gained, what would you what advice would you give um, an optometrist who's trying to get their hands around this practice? They want it to continue to grow. It seems like it's it's kind of leveled off or stalled out a little bit. What type of advice would you give someone like that? Well, invariably, if um, in healthcare practices and for that matter, law practices, you're going to you're going to find that the that the practitioner is trying to trying to again be the smartest guy in the room. He's trying to, to be the expert on everything because he's got the letters at, at the end of his name, and that was a mistake that I made. Now I, I did wind up with a, a a pretty great staff, but I was an arrogant butt, as many attorneys are, and uh, and as a result, I was not listening to them the way that uh, that I should have. I was trying to do too much myself. So I think it's really important to <clears throat> find people. Put them on your team who have skill sets that are not the thing that if you that are not the thing that you do. So if you are an optometrist, you want to try to make sure that you can leverage more time into being an optometrist and less time into being a bookkeeper or or a bill collector. Okay. And how do you uh, bring that team together so that there's a cohesiveness in terms of pulling everybody pulling in the same direction? reaching to working to achieve the same goals well if you got your team already together i mean it may be it may one of the things that you may wind up doing is you know we we, we sit down you know with the practitioner and we establish what it is that what is the mission and then talk to him ex- or her extensively about what it is they're doing inside the practice itself and if we see things that they are doing that are not practicing optometry then we try to get them away from being um, a very expensive bookkeeper or a you know very expensive scheduler or a very expensive um, accounts uh, receivable department. So, uh, and then once we've done that, uh, one of the things that we often suggest to, to people to do is that they have their people and themselves uh, do some profiling. Um, uh, we're big fans of the DISC profile. And then there's another profile called the Col- Colby B. And um, uh, the disc profile uh, shows, shows, your, um, uh, shows your leanings uh, in terms of the way that you work. The uh, Colby B profile shows um, how you think about certain things. And, um, it, and we think those two items are critical uh, tools to use when you're bringing a team together. And sometimes, unfortunately, it means uh, um, that you can foresee somebody having to leave the team because they uh, they don't have what uh, is going to be necessary for the position that they're in and there's no lateral place to move them. So, uh, but you, again, always want to make those kinds of decisions uh, with, uh, with dignity. It seems like in the, the first pillar is mission and values. Yes. And so many small business people have been to seminars and conferences and they talk about the importance of a mission statement and and deciding what your core values are. What are some practical steps that an optometrist could use to actually begin to do that and to come up with something that a mission statement that's not a eight and a half by 11 single space typed page but actually is concise and captures 
the essence of what their mission is. What are some practical things that you'd suggest? Well, you know, that's one of the things that we that we will do when we're working with a, a, a client. You know, we'll ask them to, if you will, to, you know, spill it all out. And then we start digesting it to its finest points. And really what you want to do, and yeah, can you do that yourself? Yes, you can. But uh, our experience and observation has been that having somebody um, coaching and facilitating is uh, a much more effective way to go, as self-serving as that might sound. But you want to try to reduce that. Uh, that statement of your mission down to about uh, to a paragraph of two to three sentences and um, something that you can easily communicate that everybody in your organization, when you communicate the mission to them, understands it and can tell others. And then um, once you have done that in a small uh, healthcare practice, you probably are going to be involved in, um, in, and the behaviors and forming what those behaviors, those values are that are going to be necessary to, to help um, the, the mission to be achieved. And some of those things will be universal and some of those things will be function specific. So, um, you know, somebody who is a, uh, an assistant to the physician um, may, will have some function specific things that the person who's handling the accounting for the practice does not and vice versa. We, um, at Texas State Optical, which you know I'm involved with, and this yes. podcast, from time to time I'll bring up ideas. Um, several years ago, when we gathered the leadership of the organization together, and for purpose of coming up with a mission statement and a set of core values, uh, we ended up with um, a mission statement that I'm extremely proud of. And it is, um, we help people see the important things in life. Wow. I love that, man. That, that really is, uh, you get a, a great picture in your head when you say that. Yes. And, and so it all stemmed from the fact that when we sat and said, well, what is it we really do? And we don't sell glasses and contacts. We just, we help people see the important things in life. And so I, I understand the, the challenge, private practice optometrist setting down to go, okay, one, do I need a mission statement? Because I'm running this. I know what I'm doing. But I think what you just brought up is extremely important. And that is the, what's important is to communicate that to the others on the team so that you all see the same purpose for being there and uh, can share in accomplishment of that mission. So I appreciate you kind of breaking that down. Well, John, that's a, an important thing that you bring up because if if the only person who knows what the mission is is the practitioner, I would argue that that impairs the value of the practice uh, when it's when it's time to sell. And we one of the things that we emphasize as a practice area at Seabrook Wessex is business exit planning. And so we don't want somebody just coming up and deciding at the last minute, well, I'm going to retire next year. We'd like for them to give us 18 months to five years to uh, to lay out a, a plan of attack. And um, part of the plan of attack includes what happens if that practitioner can't show up tomorrow morning. Uh, if everybody knows what the mission is and there is a plan to, to fill the slot, so to speak, uh, then it's going to be uncomfortable and painful and sad. But at least while that guy is out, uh, or if it's permanent uh, because of death or incapacity, the value of the practice uh, is protected. It's an excellent point. And uh, there's a large 
number of practices every year that are transitioning and want to uh, figure out. That's one of the most common questions I get is how do I go about, you know, transitioning or exiting in the way that I want to. All their career, they've looked towards that being their retirement, and they they find themselves now faced with, yeah, but I don't know what to do. So what you're doing there is of great value. Well, Frank, I'm sorry, but it looks like we're out of time. We've come to that time, end of the program here. We have uh, really appreciate all the time and information that you've provided us. For those people who would like to know more or get in touch with you, uh, what should they do? Uh, they can uh, email me directly, frank at seabrook-wessex.com, and that's S-E-A-B-R-O-O-K-W-E-S-S-E-X.com. Uh, or you can um, uh, dial me directly on Johns Island, South Carolina at 843-941-5132. All right, great. Well, again, thank you for being on today. I think it's very interesting. People are going to be um, fascinated to learn more about what Seabrook Wessex can offer them. Um, I find it extremely interesting, your experience with the Jack Welch program. And I've always been an admirer of Jack and considered him to be one of the, the, in, the business um, community's uh, best leaders and managers. And so I can't imagine um, what it's like to go through and really learn from someone in such a structured way. And I appreciate you taking the time today to be with us. Absolutely, John. Thank you very much. So that concludes our episode today with Frank Warren of Seabrook Wessex. Uh, Frank had left you some contact information that you can refer back to and get in touch with him if you'd like to know more. If you'd like to communicate with us, you have a question or you've got an idea of an episode that you'd like to see recorded, you can reach us at producer at insight-podcast.com. That is producer at insightpodcast.com. Well, that's all for today's show. This is John Marvin, and we want to thank you for listening.